First Baptist Church of Greg Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word. Gracious Father, we are we're gathered here this morning because of your plan to redeem for yourself a people. Because of the work of your Son, His life, death, and resurrection, and your Spirit applying that to our life. We come into your presence knowing that you receive us as your precious children. Father, we give you thanks for the grace upon grace you have extended to us even this very hour. Causing us to remember, to trust, to walk in your ways. We offer ourselves to you and confess together that apart from your grace, helping us to hear and to to set aside every distraction, to understand and apply that there will be no good work done here today. But we pray expectantly, knowing that you are abundantly, eternally, immutably faithful to do far more than we ever think or ask. So would you be pleased to magnify the name of your Son and build up your people into our head, the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you be pleased to save those among us who have not yet seen their sin, nor their need for a Savior? Would this be the morning that the scales are removed from their eyes, that they cry out and be saved? Lord, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, we've got quite a bit to cover today, and I've even got some things that are not necessarily in your notes. And so, as my Old Testament survey professor would say, roller skates on your pencils and be prepared to jot down what you can, um, because we got a lot to cover. Most of you are aware that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and when he did, he taught them to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. This morning, we're going to conclude this, this larger section in 2 Samuel that runs from chapter 9 through 20 and see why it is we pray that very prayer. I know we've got a few more chapters left after this, but this is, in one sense, the end of a rather epic, long journey recording the rise of David, his establishment as king over all of Israel, the exaltation of that kingdom for the sake of Israel, and then also, sadly, the fall of that kingdom. And this morning, we hopefully will be encouraged to pray more and more as we see the day drawing near, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because here we see thy kingdom went. That is actually what's recorded for us in verses 23 through 26. Not those words precisely, Yet all the same, that's what we find concluding this section. And so let's take that up and see. You don't have necessarily in this note, this in your notes, but there are four major sections here in 2 Samuel that I want you to record and write down. This is starting with the rise of David. That's what we lead off with when we open the book of 2 Samuel. The rise of David has been recorded for us clearly. We find it recorded in 2 Samuel chapter uh, 1 through 3 and even furthermore into chapter 4 through 8. But I pointed this out multiple times on different occasions that there are these four sections and each of them, we know they're four sections because each of them ends with a list of what I just read, names. At the end of the first section, at the beginning of chapter 3, you've got a list of sons of David born to David in Hebron. Then it's following by the next section that ends with another list of sons born to David in Jerusalem. Then you have the third section that ends with a list of not sons, but administrators. 
And finally, we come to this last section with another list of administrators. What's interesting about this, and I know that sounds like boring, but what's interesting about those lists and these concluding statements that precede them is that right before each one of these lists, there is this grand statement that concludes and actually tells the story of that section in a broad, sweeping way. It it tells you the entire narrative of what's in the section uh, that it concludes. They tell a story of the rise and fall of David. So I want to walk through those sections very quickly, those concluding statements. In the opening scene of 2 Samuel, we know we find David living not in Judah, but with the Philistines, where he fled to escape the hand of King Saul. And a messenger comes reporting the death of Saul. Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. David responds in that chapter, both by an act of justice, putting the messenger to death for putting his hands on the Lord's anointed, and then a lament And that lament, you remember, it teaches us a very important lesson. It was instructive for us. It taught us, in fact, a primary lesson that's all throughout 1 and 2 Samuel. Do not trust in sword or spear or horses or chariots because the battle belongs to the Lord. That's right. So the end of the lament in 2 Samuel 1 verse 27, we read, How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. The weapons of war did not help Saul in his day of trouble. That actually flows all throughout of Samuel. If we've seen it once, we've seen it a thousand times. David demonstrated this in this section. He is a picture of meekness. In fact, that was obvious from David's famous battle between David and Goliath when he says this in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 47. To Goliath, he says, the Lord does not save with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. David lived that out in 1 Samuel and at the beginning section of 2 Samuel. So so we have in our mind who this David is at the beginning of 2 Samuel. And when we do, we might better understand how this fall takes place. I would actually point out, even in 2 Samuel, that's why we find David at the end of that first section inquiring of the Lord. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, it says, It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? He said, To Hebron. So David went up there. So you see really two sides of the same coin here. You might just name it humility or meekness. We would certainly call it dependence, wouldn't we? David is a man dependent upon the Lord. He trusts not in sword and spear, but in the Lord who has called and equipped him. The same Lord who saved him from the paw of the lion and the jaw of the bear. It's the same Lord who has been with him through the wilderness, wandering and in the land of the Philistines. He is a humble man who inquires of the Lord in 2 Samuel 2. And I point that out because it's one of the last times we see David inquiring of the Lord. Concluding statement, 2 Samuel 3, 1 says this, But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. So you see how this works now, right? That's a concluding statement that summarizes what I just said in those first two chapters. So then we come now to the second section. Here we see David is established as king, and the kingdom is exalted. So we see David not only rewards the good, 
He punishes and condemns the evil. David condemns the violence of Joab. He punishes Ba'anah and Rakab for stabbing Ishbosheth and cutting off his head while he lays in bed. And that's significant. Because David is demonstrating once again, he's a humble, weak, dependent upon the Lord man who understands as king he must punish the evil and reward the good. And finally in chapter 5, David is anointed king over all of Israel. He goes on to conquer Jerusalem. The king of Tyre sends tribute, and so to speak, for David's house to be built. And we read the second concluding statement of the second section. So you remember the first one, David grew stronger and stronger, the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Let's look at the second one. 2 Samuel 5, verse 12. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Then we have the second list, the list of David's sons that was born in Jerusalem. So, so far we've got two pretty good statements in We have David actually established as king and the kingdom exalted. But we're not even to the pinnacle yet. We're still rising up there. We're not even to the top part. Here's the top part. David's house is going to be established. Now we come to the third section. David's house is going to be established. That's more than just David. In other words, David's house is going to be elevated. The promise is going to be given and his house will become a fount of blessing. This whole section, starting at the end of chapter 5 through the end of chapter 8, it's the pinnacle, it's the height of David's reign. Remember what happens, the ark of the Lord comes to David, blessing comes to Israel, and a curse comes to the one who rejects David. The kingdom is promised, and David's house becomes the focus of this blessing in chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, all the nations and enemies are subdued by David because the Lord is with him, and we find our third concluding statement. 2 Samuel 8, verses 14 through 15. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered judgment and justice to all his people. All right, let's back up and read them together now. Okay, you ready? Three sections. First, 2 Samuel 3, 1. David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. 2 Samuel 5, 12. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Then here we read, And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. This is the height to which David rose. And and really, to appreciate our passage, we got to return there. Remembering what the Lord had accomplished the hand of David in securing the promised land. You have a unified Israel living in peace with all of their enemies subjected to them. And you have the king, the Lord's anointed, administering justice and judgment to everyone. I mean, that's, that's pretty good in a world that is still stained and tainted by sin. Unfortunately, it's also very short-lived. Because now we come to the section we're concluding today and we see, as David rose... So David falls. That's what's been recorded for us in chapters 9 through 20. It starts out pretty decent, right? Mephibosheth is blessed as an outworking of what the Lord had accomplished through David. Hadadazar is defeated. But but even in those two, you actually have a foreshadowing of some not so good things that are going to transpire shortly. So as we roll up into chapter 11, David falls hard. He sins against the Lord. 
In chapter 12, he's disciplined and yet forgiven for his sin. But, but David's fall is anything but subtle. It's direct. He despises the Lord who called and appointed him to be prince of his people Israel. From adultery to coveting and everything in between. King David used his authority and power to satisfy his unholy desires. And he brings a curse upon the house of blessing. As the Nathan the prophet declares, the sword will not depart from your house. The house of blessing also oddly enough becomes a house of curse. By the time we get to the end of chapter 20 and close of this section, we are watching thy kingdom went. An innocent son will die in his place. The son who the Lord loves is born is Solomon. The promise remains, hope remains, and yet the fall continues. While we wait for the fulfillment of that promise, we see David's house actually fill up with violence. Amnon assaults and hates Tamar. Absalom hates and kills Amnon. David does nothing. He neither rewards the good nor does he punish the evil. Absalom then threatens Joab, seduces Israel, exiles his own father. We're a long way from thy kingdom come, thy will be done in chapters 6 through 8 that picture that. So we are not too terribly surprised when we come to our concluding remarks of section 4. Our last list, and what's the remark that comes right before this list? I didn't read it because I wanted to save it for you in, chapter, in verse 22. Here's the concluding remark for, chapter, for section 4. Then he blew a trumpet, and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. That's a little anticlimactic, isn't it? <laughs> Let's just think about it. David's house grew stronger and stronger. The house of Saul weaker and weaker. David is established king and exalted for the sake of Israel. The Lord preserved David wherever he went. David reigned over all of Israel, administering judgment and justice. And Joab blew the trumpet and went home. Praise God. (laughs) Maybe we're missing something. You think? We are. In fact... We're back to where we started. Let me read you a text that says this. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. That's not chapter 20. That's chapter 2. The the preceding comments before we read, David's house grew stronger and stronger, and Saul's house grew weaker and weaker. See, we've returned right back to where we started. In fact, even if you compare just those two statements, even if you compare just those two, there are subtle hints at declension even in that. Chapter 2 is actually better than what we just read in chapter 20. There's no mention of mourning in chapter 20. And as I pointed out then, good things transpire in the morning. You have they come back at daybreak. You also have Joab returning with all of his men. Everyone just goes home in chapter 20 and Joab returns to Jerusalem apparently by himself. Furthermore, and most significant, we don't have any reassuring words in chapter 20 that all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. Those words are gone. More importantly, there's no concluding paragraph describing the growing authority and influence of the Lord's anointed. It's absent and strikingly so. Instead, we've got a 
A repetition of the list of administrators of chapter 8 with a few even not so subtle changes there that communicate what we already observed. That is, David has fallen. Thy kingdom came, thy kingdom went. This is what the narrator is communicating to us. David disappears from the preceding concluding remark. In fact, I want, I want to read the previous list of administrators of names in chapter 8. I want you to think about this, okay? Even in this list, think about it. It says, so David reigned over all Israel. He administered judgment and justice to all his people. Chapter 8, verse 15. Then verse 16. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Elhud, was recorder. Then our text. Then he blew a trumpet, and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. And Joab was over all the army of Israel. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Adoram was in charge of revenue. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ehelud, was the recorder. David disappears. So does judgment and justice. David's still in charge, but he's now enforcing his own agenda... Furthermore, the second list is now straight up top-heavy with violence and tyranny. Did you notice that? See, see, there are things the narrator does to communicate that something's quite significant. So in chapter 8, in the list of administrators, you have Joab the commander, but then it moves straight to a recorder than the priest. Now, you have Joab, who's the commander of all the armies in Israel, and we should probably just stop right there and ask... Is it a good thing that Joab is over all the army? I mean, this Joab's an, he's an interesting character, isn't he? We could fall down a rabbit hole and spend entirely too much time here, but, but, but Joab's sometimes used in such a way that he actually appears more righteous than David. But in general, if you just take a broad scope of the man Joab, he is a man of the sword and spear, isn't he? He lives by the sword, and guess what? He's going to die by the sword. He is the same man who struck down Abner and Amasa deceptively in cold blood. He's the same man who struck down the king's son after the king had ordered him not to. He is a man who does not hesitate to tear down an entire city with a mother of Israel if that's what it takes to get victory. He is the quintessential man of violence, the man in this world, a man of sword and spear, and he has command over all the army of Israel. David disappears, and violent Joab looms larger. But it's not just Joab. Continue on with the list. We move from Joab not to a recorder or a priest. Instead, you move to commander of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Who are they? They are actually Philistine mercenaries. Now, they're very faithful to David, but again, who are they? They're mighty men that bear the sword, more violence. So why are they moved to the top? Why not the same order? Because what we're seeing in this section is a movement away from meek David, who's dependent upon the Lord, who understands the battle belongs to the Lord, to David, who's dependent on the sword of Joab, the Cherethites, and the Pelophites. Even more disturbing is what's next. There's a newcomer. He wasn't in the list of original ministrators. His name is Adoram. He was in charge, as the New King James says, of the revenue. The the Hebrew word there literally means tribute. And if you have, I believe an ESV translates this as forced labor. And that's really 
the connotation there. Adoram is in charge of the forced labor. Now, listen, we could, we could give David the benefit of the doubt here, right? Maybe, I'll leave it up to you, we can assume the forced labor was the one who was in charge of the conquered nations. That's fine. Sure. But it is worth noting that this is the second list that hints in the list of a future fall. Follow me here. You remember we said there's two lists of sons and two lists of administrators, right? In the second list of sons, there's a name in Jerusalem. Second list is Solomon. His name is listed. And the narrator is already pointing forward to the fall of David with Bathsheba and Uriah. Here we have... The second list of administrators. And it includes someone who's in charge of the forced labor. Well, if you attended our Old Testament survey class through the book of 1 Kings, why might that be significant? Because at the end of the day, the nation of Israel is going to split into two kingdoms. And you know what they split over? Forced labor. 1 Kings 12, Israel will come in and say, listen... Solomon's forced labor was too much. Please, Rehoboam, lighten the load. And he'll say, you ain't seen nothing yet. You want to you see forced labor? I'll show you forced labor. And isn't that interesting? That the second time we have a subtle foreshadowing of a disastrous fall. Chapter, in, chapter 8 ends with David administering judgment and justice. Chapter 20 ends with Joab, the man of blood. Benaiah, who is over the Philistines, and Adoram, who is in charge of the forced labor or tribute. There's actually one more. We're missing someone. So you have the commanders of the armies, the leaders of the forced labor here. But, but who's missing? David's sons are missing, aren't they? David's sons, who, who actually were serving as priests and said, we've seen David's sons in this chapter, this section, being corrupt and full of blood. And I think this hints at an issue here. Remember, the promise is what? The promise to David is, I will raise up one of your sons after you. I will establish his throne. He will build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. An eternal kingdom. And so, yes, David still is king in the kingdom of Israel. That still stands. But for those of us who are reading from Genesis to 2 Samuel, knowing what the hope is, knowing the hope is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's what we're waiting for. It's what we're longing for. It's what we read our Bibles looking for. And if you were before Jesus, nothing short than the kingdom of God coming, is being, His will being done on earth as it is in heaven, His knowledge covering the earth as waters cover the sea can be pointed to and say, yes, we've arrived. And if you're reading your Bible like that and you get here, you are like, oh man, David is a letdown. Thy kingdom come, but thy kingdom went and now we're just left with a shell. It's really like we caught a glimpse, one of the clearest reflections of the kingdom of God that we are hoping for as we read through 2 Samuel. At the beginning, it's like a little window has been opened up into heaven and we say, oh, it's coming. It's almost here. We see it and we understand it's a shadow, it's not substance. And yet, our hearts long for it. We long for something fuller, something better, and now we read and the window is closed. And once again, we're sitting outside with only the memory of how things should be. And listen, if, if you think this interpretation is overly cynical, how did you get that from a list of names? Well, I will admit I have a cynical bend in me. If you get to know me, you'll know that I confess that. But, 
but I would simply point out to you the opening verse of the next section in chapter 21. You want to know how chapter 21 begins? Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Thy kingdom went. Here we have a final subtle declaration that the kingdom has went, and I think it would be wise for us to finish here taking up the few lessons that are actually in your notes this week. Here's what we learn from this fall. Quickly. The first thing we learn is this. Falling begins with forgetting. You need to hear this. Falling begins with forgetting. Church family, forgetting is deadly and we're all prone to it. David begins to think of himself as a king of the nations. Look, he doesn't just wake up one day and think, you know what? I really am a king like Pharaoh. No. He slowly but surely forgot that he was prince and not king. He slowly but certainly forgot that Yahweh is king. He slowly forgot, how do I know unless I inquire of the Lord? He slowly but surely forgot, it's not my sword that wins the battle. It doesn't matter how big the army is or how violent Joab is or how faithful the Cherethites and Pelethites are because the battle belongs to the Lord. Thy kingdom went. Why? Because David forgot. See, there's this warning that brackets the book of Deuteronomy that we need to hear and remember. And I'll just read this Song of Moses part from Deuteronomy 32, verse 15. It says, But Jeshurun, who is Israel, but Jeshurun grew fat and wicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. So, so Jeshurun is Israel, and what happened? Israel grew fat and comfortable, like fat Thor on the roof of his palace in Jerusalem. Seriously, spiritually, that's exactly what happens. Friends, we get spiritually fat and lazy. And here's what happens. This is why it happens. It's because we forget who we are. We forget who we were. We forget what God has done and who we are now. We lose sight of who we were. And what the Lord has done to bring us to where we are. We skip all of that. And and we just say, well, this is who I've always been. I've, I've always been morally upright. We forget. Look, just just picture David on the rooftop of his palace. Should he not have remembered, I'm in a palace that I did not build. I am king of a people that I did not create. I've been made prince of a people by the Lord himself. But instead, when he ate and was full, he forgot the Lord. Church family, listen, we are forgetful people. We forget who we were. We forget what the Lord has done to redeem us. And we forget who we are now in Christ. We forget our God. We forget our Savior. We forget Like, I don't know about you, but but I get frustrated because I forget. You realize that, right? Just being really transparent for a second, I'm prone to do that at times. Sometimes I get frustrated as a pastor. Really frustrated. But you want to know why? Because I forget what I was. I forget what the Lord has done to save me, let alone to give me the honor and privilege of proclaiming the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ, week in and week out. 
The honor and privilege of feeding the sheep, laboring for the sake of his bride. I tend to think pastoring is quite burdensome sometimes. Because I forget. I assume I'm not alone there. I assume there are times you get frustrated, impatient, angry, discontent, because you too forget. This is, by the way, why we gather week in and week out. And hear me, it's why it's so critical that you don't take a single week off. Listen, I don't care where you go. You need to be gathering with God's people every single week. If you are able to, if you are not providentially hindered, and we're starting to use that term pretty loosely, you need to be gathering with God's people every single week. Why? Because we remind each other all the time. That's what we're doing here together. Like, hear me, nothing new has been taught this morning, has it? Is there anything I proclaim from God's word this morning that is brand spanking new? Lord, I hope not. But this is a reminder because we forget. In fact, Peter is going to write to his people in 2 Peter 1. He says, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it's right, as long as I'm in this tent, meaning his body, to stir you up by reminding you. Knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Really, the next two lessons are just an outworking of the first. But the second lesson is this. Not only does falling begin with forgetting, but secondly, we hide sin because we forget. That's the truth. We hide sin because we forget. Hiding sin increases sin, always and everywhere. It's actually directly related to the first lesson, because if you're hiding sin, you've forgotten that you know and serve a God who sees all. If you're hiding sin, continuing to sweep it under the rub, thinking, no one knows, it doesn't matter, it's not impacting anyone, you have forgotten that you actually stand before a God this very morning who sees it all. You actually aren't hiding. There is no rug. I mean, the image is actually ludicrous. It's like we've swept five dead bodies under a rug and we invite the Lord in and say, it's quiet time, Lord, come on in. But the rug's piled up like this high and so you just kind of climb on over it like, nothing to see here, Lord. Don't worry about it. How utterly ridiculous is that? Friend, the Lord sees all. He sees your sin. And so here's the point. It's already in the light. You think you're keeping it in the darkness and you're not. Clearly we see this illustrated in the life of David. Your hiding sin is sin. It just increases sin. And so please confess your sin to the Lord. Bring it to light because it's already there. He sees it. Paul writes in Ephesians 5 verses 12 and 13. For it's shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. 
or as we even read in our kids' time, 1 John 1, 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and the Word is not in us. We hide sin because we forget. And hiding sin begets sin that begets sin that begets more sin. One more. Last lesson. It's this. Our sin always impacts others. Our sin always impacts others. Again, this is so clearly illustrated in the life of David, is it not? Hear me. We are actually connected with one another in a way that can't ultimately be separated. Did you know that? I'm talking about us as church family. Our lives always are directly connected to the lives of others. The whole idea of complete autonomy is ludicrous. The decisions you make, the things you think, will always impact others. Your sin, my sin, our sin directly impacts other people. Just think about the train wreck that started with David walking around the roof of his house. Spying on a beautiful woman, inquiring about her. The death of Uriah, the death of the son conceived by their adultery. The death of Amnon. I know you might not see that as all directly related, but it is. David's a different man coming out of chapter 12 than he was before. Everything we read from chapters 13 to 20 is an outworking of God's displeasure towards David's sin. The sword did not leave David's house, even in the short term. We see it over and over again. There's a sense to what we saw last week with that dude Sheba losing his head because that woman don't play is because David walked around the roof of his house in the afternoon. All happened because of that. Our sin, hear me, our sin can never simply be contained to us. The consequences of it can't be confined to us. And I'm sure for some, this immediately feels really burdensome, weighty, overbearing even. Because why? Because we're sinning all the time. Right? There, isn't, there isn't a thought, word, or deed that isn't tainted by sin. So now I've got to add to that the burden of every time my thoughts are skewed, I might be irrefutably harming my brother and sister. No, here's the point. You have to hear this. What you do in your house that dishonors the Lord has an impact on the body of Christ. Here. It impacts our spiritual health and vitality. Just think of Ephesians 4 here. We are connected in such a way that when any of us aren't working properly, there are real consequences to the others. But here's what you really need to hear. Repentance also works like that. See, this idea of repentance that leads to prolonged periods of depression and anxiety, it's not real repentance. Biblical repentance always leads to rejoicing. Why? Because biblical repentance automatically leads you to the mercy of God. It's not biblical repentance if it stops short of God's grace and mercy. It's not simply the acknowledgement of God's holiness in my sin. True repentance is also the faith that God will forgive me knowing He's merciful and gracious. And so look, I'm going to sin today. Not intentionally, I hope, but my expectations are not high. But, But I'm also going to repent 
How can I be so confident? Because I know that the God of all grace is working in me by His Spirit. And hear me, when I repent, I'm actually strengthening my brothers and sisters in Christ. They are reminded, oh yeah, there is no temptation that is not common to men. Oh yeah, I'm not the only one who struggles with that. Instead, the body languishes as every person hides their sin in darkness and fails to actually bring it to light in such a way that we see sin for what it is and celebrate together the grace and mercy of God. Encouraging one another, press on brother, press on sister. That doesn't define you. That's not who you are anymore. Your friends, your co-workers, your family, your church family, they don't need you to be perfect because you're not. They don't need your righteousness. You know what they need? They need a reflection of the true and better David. They need a humble dependence upon the Father, looking to the Son, trusting in Him completely for their salvation, and walking in complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit. They need people who are not afraid to confess their sins or their struggles. To proclaim that even in the midst of those struggles, the mercy and forgiveness that our Father gladly gives to all who come to Him in Christ. Friends, that's why we gather here each week. It, it, it's why. Listen, we've got to, we've got to, we have such a consumeristic mentality that is so ingrained in what I believe it means to be an American that it bleeds over constantly in the church. You are all about what I can get from the service that personally affects me and me alone. Friends, that's not what the church is for. You exist for the glory of God and for one another. You actually impact one another. When's the last time you confessed sin to a brother and sister in Christ here? When's the last time you even talked about what God has said to us through His Word in a deep conversation after church? When's the last time you were so moved by the preaching of God's Word that you couldn't wait to ask questions and talk about the Word that was preached? Friends, we, we don't exist apart from one another. We, we're together. We're a family of God. Seems like a reasonable segue into her another reminder this this longing for the kingdom as we see the fall of david it's fulfilled in the coming of christ in the fullness of time when god sent forth his son to take on our flesh to live the life we should have lived to obey his father completely fully always the perfect man of judgment and justice the man of righteousness is also the man who died in our place He's also the man, as we sang, became sin for us. Took upon himself the curse that was meant for us. Swallowed the sword from David's house so that now all we know is blessing. He was raised from the dead. Friends, what we need is a faithful and true head and a king that will never die. We need a kingdom that will never come to an end. What we need is 2 Samuel chapters 1 through 8 without chapters 9 through 20. And we have that and more in the gospel. It's what Jesus did. Thy kingdom has come. It is coming and it will come. I want you to turn your attention really quickly to one text and then we'll close up. Amos chapter 9. This wonderful promise. Amos 9 verses 11 through 15. It says, On that day... I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins 
and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by thy name, says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seeds. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. That's abundance, folks. Sounds delicious. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. And all of this is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. The tabernacle of David has been restored, raised up, rebuilt, and we inhabit it. The kingdom is coming, and there will never again be a Second Samuel chapter 20, verses 23 through 26. So we end with this exhortation. Don't forget. Remind one another, because you are forgetting as I'm reminding you, and I'm forgetting as you remind me. Remind one another, gather, remember, read and remember, pray and remember. You are prone to forget when things are going well. You are prone to forget when things are going bad. So we remind one another over and over again as we see the day approaching again. It would have been a great day to have the Lord's Supper. We'll have it soon. I'm concluding with these lyrics to the song I sent out this week by the band The Grey Havens. My wife will tell you I'm obsessed with them, listen to them constantly. They're so good. The song is called uh, Gone Are the Days. And here's the lyrics. It says, Hope, in the furnace you know it can burn away slow or come out like gold. And mine is walking the edge of the knife in the fire tonight, in the fire I fight. With a song carries on to the night, the future that's bright, the morning will bring. One day, when sorrows are gone, for they're down and along, we'll finally sing. We'll sing gone are the days when we cry. Here are the days when we'll fly. All our hopes will turn to sight beyond the veil and the morning light. We'll sing gone are the days. I wait, but it's so hard, you know. To believe on your own that you'll be okay. When sorrow keeps chasing me down, I'll run till my feet hit the ground when we gather to pray. As I reach for the bread and the wine, for the comfort I'll find, picture the scene. One day to the table will come every daughter and son finally free. We'll sing, gone are the days when we cry. Here are the days when we'll fly. All our hopes will turn to sight. Beyond the veil and the morning light, we'll sing, gone are the days. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me as we close together? Gracious Father, oh, how we long for that day even as we're reminded this morning that it is already here, it is coming, and will soon be upon us. That day, when your Son appears and makes all things new, then 
Then will be gone the days when we cry. Then will be the days that we fly. Father, stir up in us again that remembrance that stirs us up to love and good works in this moment as our hope is enlivened and brightened. You know, Father, how desperately in our day we need to remember. So help us, we ask, that we might more faithfully follow your Son. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's sing this hymn of reflection together. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. We'll come to our time of response. Um, If you're new here, again, our response happens after the service. Um, I'll be down front and Pastor Justin will be at the back of our service to to pray with you to see how we can minister to you. If you're a church family, the application is pretty simple, right? Who here is prone to forget? Who here is in need of a reminder day by day of what you were, what God has done for you, and who you are now in Christ? Okay, you know the place for that? You're sitting in it right now. (laughs) That's the place. So the response for you as a church member is maybe you are like me and you are prone to forget day by day. Well, remind one another in love what Christ has done. Remember that hiding sin only begets more sin. Confess it. Confess it and truly repent of it, which means receive the grace and mercy of a loving God. Receive the forgiveness of your sins. Who wouldn't want that? Somebody who has lived in habitual, unconfessed sin at points in time in my life, I can tell you there is no more freedom than when you're finally set free and you embrace the forgiveness of of a good and holy God who loves you immeasurably. So confess your hidden sin to one another and remember how your sin impacts others. What you do in your house impacts how we gather even here. Confess it. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't really had anything to forget because you don't truly know. You maybe have heard from the first time that the kingdom is coming. The kingdom has come and Christ is coming and will come. Well, let me share with you what we believe. If you're not a Christian today, you need to hear this. We believe in a holy God who created all things for His glory because He Himself is glorious. He created mankind to to live in this world and to be the chief of all creation, to have dominion over the world under His divine and supreme authority. Man was created in the image of God. There are ways in which we are like our Creator and our ability to love and to have knowledge and to show compassion and mercy. There are ways in which we're not like our Creator who is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. But we sinned against our Creator. We broke His law where He set us apart to live for His glory. We decided to live for our own. Instead, we worship the creation instead of Creator. And in breaking this law of God, we are therefore deserving for His just punishment because it's His world we're living in. He's not living in ours, we're living in His. So He has set and given His law, and the punishment for breaking His law is death, not just physical death, but spiritual death, our inability to be able to get to this God on our own. And yet in His great love, God made away by sending His perfect Son, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Jesus lived the life perfectly under God's law and His original design. He 
didn't disobey his father. He didn't sin against the Lord. He didn't break God's law. And therefore, he actually wasn't deserving of a punishment. But in the greatest display of grace the world has ever known, Christ willingly went to the cross to bear the wrath and judgment of his father for sins that he never committed, but for the sins that you and I have committed. And in doing so, God took the righteousness, the right standing of his son, and he placed it on all who would believe in his death and his gospel. So that you and I are now seen by our God as though we've never sinned, covered in the righteousness of Jesus, even though we've expressed already today our propensity to sin. He vindicated that sacrifice by raising Jesus from the dead. He has conquered the greatest enemy, death. He is alive today, sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession for His people. And if we would believe in this gospel, repent of our sins, turn away from worshiping ourselves the creation, understanding that we were created to worship Christ and follow after Him, if we would repent of this and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, not just the facts about the gospel, but actually resting and trusting that they're sufficient enough to save us, that nothing else needs to be done for our salvation. Christ has done it all. We're resting in Him. If we would believe and repent and believe in this gospel, then you and I today can be saved. We can have the guarantee that when our final breath takes place on earth, that we too with Christ will be conquerors over even death. And we'll live forever with Him, worshiping Him for all eternity. Friends, if you have not repented and believed in this gospel, do not wait any longer. We'll be here all day if it takes. We want to see someone know Jesus this morning. All I'm asking is at the end of our service, you grab someone by the hand, myself, Pastor Justin, and you say, I want to know more about how today I can know Jesus. We'd love, we'd love to, to show you from the scriptures how that's possible today.